Another episode of Mormon Discussion. Welcome to a special edition episode. Today we sit down with Melissa Inoue, a sister in the church, a scholar, and she comes highly recommended. She has been around the world, seen a multitude of different places, and experienced the church in a multitude of cultures. In our conversation today, towards the end, she raises the awareness of Latter-day Saint children in underdeveloped countries who are malnourished and who, for all intents and purposes, are starving. She makes us aware of a foundation, the Liahona Children's Foundation, whose sole purpose and outreach is to Latter-day Saint children who are malnourished, who are who are not getting the amount of food and care that they need to simply survive. Here at Mormon Discussion Podcast, we'd like to help, and I'm hoping that you, as the listeners, will try to help as well. The plan is that this podcast will release, I'm believing, in the very, very early uh, day or two of April. For every donation made to Mormon Discussion Podcast in the month of April, I will pass that donation on to the Liahona Children's Foundation in the name of the Mormon Discussion Podcast listeners. Uh, as a group. I also would encourage you that if you don't want to donate that way, but you do want to help this organization out, please check out their website. It is found at www.liahonachildren.org. And uh, right in the top right-hand corner, you can click Donate Now and make a donation that way. Again, thank you for your support. What a great cause, and uh, hopefully we can do some good. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I am great. Thank you. Excellent. Glad to have you on. You uh, you have come by uh, by high recommendation uh, from the people at Fair Mormon, and so I'm looking forward to this interview. You've got a unique story to tell, and so I think uh, my listeners are going to be quite excited when they they hear this one come along. I wonder if you might start us off uh, just telling us uh, your your full name and uh, a little bit of background about you, maybe a little bit about your growing up. Okay. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm really excited to be on the podcast. My name is Melissa Waitsing Inoue. Uh, Waiting means great wisdom. So they said when I was born, but actually my parents weren't actually really sure about that because they didn't speak Chinese themselves. <laughs> my father is um, my father is Japanese American. He's third generation. My mother was third generation Chinese American, so she actually spoke no ch- Chinese at all. So gotcha. uh, my Chinese name was chosen for me by our pediatrician, okay, Doctor Yu, and um. Pretty- I mention that because, um, you know, I'm here talking about about the international church and about, you know, living in different countries. Um, but I'm actually very American. Um, my, you know, my parents grew up speaking only English and uh, the Chinese that I learned, I learned in college and also on my mission. I look Asian, but I'm I'm actually also quite American. However, having said that, I did grow up in a very Asian family. Um, you know, the Japanese side of my family and the Chinese side of my family have some pretty, you know, wonderful traditions and some some you know, distinctive cultural uh, values that came through when we were being raised. I grew up in Southern California in Orange County in a little town called Costa Mesa that's kind of sandwiched between the fancier towns of Newport Beach and Huntington Beach. But um, I was in Costa Mesa until I graduated from high school, and then I went to college at Harvard College in Boston. I thought about going to BYU, but 
I decided to go to Harvard because I, I was afraid that by going to BYU, I would somehow uh, rebel. I, I knew that I had a rebellious streak, and so I was afraid that you know going to BYU with all those Mormons would you know cause me to rebel against the church, um, which I didn't want to do actually. So it was kind of weird. I I, I went didn't go to BYU because I I, I knew that. I wanted to experience Mormonism as a, as a minority, and um, that's definitely what Mormons are at Harvard. And um, basically, ever since then, I've lived in places where Mormons are tiny, tiny minorities, like in China or um, Taiwan or Hong Kong. You know, it was really not until I went to church in Boston, actually, to... It wasn't until I went to college in Boston and started going to church there that I really felt like I knew who I was as an LDS person. I had never been in such a, you know, of course, college is a very formative time for everybody. Um, but the, the LDS community in Boston is just really unique. It's a very closely knit community. And there is also large, large, though closely knit. And I met some wonderful people. There's some wonderful mentors like Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who is a, an LDS professor at Harvard, mm-hmm. and um, some wonderful uh, classmates there. And that was where I really got the sense of who I was um, as a Mormon and where I really developed a, a desire to, you know, to contribute to the church um, for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, we, everyone kind of comes to this, you know, comes to their testimony in various ways. And for me, it was being involved in the Mormon community there, that very unique um, Boston Mormon culture that really helped me come into my testimony in that way. And ever since then, I've been in a number of, all, you know, other very unique Mormon cultures in Asia and in, in other parts of the world. And I've, I've so enjoyed those, I've so enjoyed being part of these kind of micro, you know, micro churches, these, these communities of unique, how to say it, uh, being part of these, these unique Mormon communities that are so, you know, that are so uniquely shaped by their environment and by the people who are there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you a question. You, you mentioned this whole idea of you wanting to, to ex- have this college experience where you were the you were a minority in regards to being a Latter Day Saint, and a lot of Latter Day Saints take the opposite take, which is to they've been a minority perhaps during their life being uh, out in the mission field, and so they want to experience kind of that difference of of being at uh, the church university, having Latter Day Saints all around them, where they can in a sense maybe even have some extra support. And see that as a positive thing, and yet you saw it as a as possibly a temptation to be rebellious. Um, that just that seems unique. I I don't know that I've ever. I know people decide to choose other universities besides BYU and to go other places. And, and Harvard's a, you know obviously as good a school as any. But uh, maybe talk for just a moment about like the positives of that, because some people are going to say no, no, it'd be better to go to BYU and be around Latter Day Saints all the time. But it sounds like that was a positive experience for you. To uh, to be at a school where you were still religiously a minority, uh, what were the what were the positive takeaways from that? Well, I think one thing is that when you're a religious minority, when you're a very small minority, you know everybody who's like you, and it's a great blessing, you know, to be able to know a, a small a large group of people so well. Um, you know, it's a large group of people in terms of, of numbers, maybe. Um, I mean, it's a, the Mormons at Harvard are a relatively large group in terms of groups of Mormons at non-Mormon colleges. I think there's about maybe 20 to 30 every year. Okay. So it's a good-sized community. Uh, but, you know, it's tiny compared to the other religious communities at Harvard. Uh and also tiny in terms of being a, a religious community at a very secular university. 
so it's just a it's just a great blessing to be able to know people because then you're involved in their lives and, and you know who they are and you can actually see their examples. You're not just a you know a little tiny faceless person. So rather than having everybody at uh, BYU obviously being almost entirely LDS, and yet it almost becomes kind of second nature to just like walk by somebody in the hall and really not know who they are. And, and you're pointing out at this at this other school where there's just a group of you that you get a chance to know each of them uh, intimately and to to know you know them as a person as an individual. I can see the strength in that. And and I assume you guys all relied on each other and uh, leaned on each other. Uh, and it probably became quite a uh, a family type of atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really great awesome. community. And then there's well, something that my um, my uncle Charles told me. My uncle Charles is at, um was uh, my a professor at Tufts University when I was going to school. Mm-hmm. He's still there now. Um, but he said, <laughs> I hope this doesn't come across as being too sacrilegious. He said Mormons are like manure. If you pile them all together in one place, they just stink. But <laughs> If you spread them around, they can do a lot of good, which I have always appreciated. That is that is good wisdom, and I think in some ways that holds true. And I don't, and I don't want to come off too as the person who's bad mouthing, uh, you know, the, the great state of Utah. But what you find, I think, is you you make a good point when you lump them all in, into a, a one spot. You're going to have good Latter Day Saints, bad Latter Day Saints, just as you have good and bad people in the world who make good and bad choices. You're gonna you're gonna have a wide diversity. But I think sometimes there's this innate push within us that when we're the only person somewhere, there's this, I don't know, feeling to, to be our best or to strive to be a little better anyway. And, uh, and I, so I, I really find that, uh, that thought that your, you said your uncle shared, uh, that thing is beautiful. Awesome. So, Melissa, I, uh, in preparation for this interview, you had mentioned, uh, some things that you and your brother had done. And uh, I wondered if you might want to share those and uh, give us some insight into what was going on there. Oh, well, the my brother's senior year in high school, uh, the summer after my brother's senior year in high school, he and I went traveling. And uh, my brother Abe met me in Hong Kong. And we traveled from Hong Kong uh, around China. We took the Trans-Mongolian Railroad to uh, Mongolia. We went from there to Russia. We went through Russia, um, Germany. Um, and various countries in Europe, and we ended up in Spain and flew home from Spain. And it was a very, uh, every week, every Sunday, uh, we found the church that was there. And if there wasn't a church there, you know, we did our own church. And it was fun. You know, we we were in Hong Kong, um, where the church is very well developed. Uh, We were in China, where the the expatriate church has a, a large group. Um, but where the, you know, where, as you know, Chinese nationals meet separately. We were in Russia. Uh, we went to church in Russia. We went to church um, in Madrid. We went to church in, I think we went to church in France. And, um, you know, my impression from that trip was the church is the same everywhere. Yeah, you know, there's the same format to the services, you know, that people are reading the same scriptures. Um, you know, the hymns are the same, of course. And that was my kind of overall impression as a young, you know, 21-year-old, I think, before my mission. The church is the same everywhere. Maybe I wasn't 21 then. Maybe I was 20. So you had traveled the world with your brother and... In- and as you point out, you go into different church meetings and uh, essentially it's a three-hour block and you have a Sunday school and you go to Relief Society and got to sacrament meeting. And, uh, the question I have for you, you mentioned going to China and I don't know exactly how you worded it. Did you say the expatriate church? 
in China, there's a, a kind of uh, the church has a special arrangement in China whereby the expatriates meet separately from the Chinese nationals. So if you're a citizen of the PRC, you must meet by yourself with other PRC citizens in small groups. And um, the expatriates, you know, from other countries, America, Canada, uh, Japan, Korea, they all meet in an expatriate branch. And, and so the the term expatriate is essentially a meaning for anybody who is not native Chinese. Yes, that's correct. Okay, that's that's unique. And uh, um, what were your thoughts about that? And I'm not trying to get into a political discussion here at all. That's, that's not my expertise anyway. But it would seem that that uh, that obviously we as a faith are very supportive of f- being loyal to the governments in which we reside in, in the countries we live in and. China obviously is not the United States in terms of how it operates and the way in which it does things. And so in a sense, it's got a, it's got, you know, these Chinese nationals who are meeting in one congregation by law and anybody else can meet in this other spot. Um, was that, was that kind of strange to you or did that just naturally fit when you were there? Uh, well, I'm familiar with the leaders of the church in, in China. And I um, I knew that they had gone to great lengths to be able to have meetings in China at all. Right. Technically, the church is illegal in China from a strictly legal point of view. The church is not one of the five approved religions. So just being able to have meetings is is, uh, is a big deal. So I you know I understand the sensitive situation there. Gotcha. That's great. And I think that kind of insight will help people as they understand, you know, how things work in other places and how hard the church works to try to get the gospel into different countries. So you go around this tour with your brother, you you get the sense that the church is the same everywhere, but I recognize that in some ways that kind of changes. Uh, you served a mission, correct? That's correct. In Taiwan, Kaohsiung. Awesome. Would you would you mind maybe sharing going on a mission to Taiwan, what that was like, and uh, some of your experiences there? Sure. So I went on a mission after my third year of college. At that time, I was an East Asian stage, East Asian Studies major at Harvard. I was a Chinese literature specialist, so I had you know studied Chinese. I had gone to study Chinese in China. I had read Taoist and Buddhist literature, so I felt going on my mission that, you know, I was the ideal instrument uh, to be, you know, to be carrying forth the Lord's work in Taiwan. I had this idea of myself as this, you know, very well-equipped missionary. And um, so I got to Taiwan. It was, um, you know, unlike most new missionaries, I was able to converse with people pretty easily. And I would try to talk to them about, you know, Taoist philosophy and how, you know, the Tao was actually a lot like the gospel. Or I would try to talk to them about, um, you know, these kind of Confucian principles and how they meshed with the gospel values. And I, I learned, you know, over this kind of slow, painful process that all of this, you know, philosophical knowledge and my ability to engage people on these, you know, intellectual questions. All of this was extremely useless <laughs> when it came right. to asking people to change their lives and uh, believe in Christ. Of course, and of course, when you say that to anyone who's been on a mission, you know, this is this is a no-brainer. But you know, it, it was a painful um, process that I had to go through, 
um, where I, f- I feel like I was actually quite prideful going into my mission. And, and I realized, you know, over the course of you know, the various experiences that you have on your mission that I was um, not a, a crack soldier, not uh, a wonderful instrument and that I had a lot of work to do. I remember um, one of the kind of key moments um, in, in coming to terms with this and realizing that the most important thing was not my ability to speak Chinese or my ability to talk about you know, Chinese culture, as important as culture is, of course, um, was when I got a new companion. It was, um, she was a, I think she was on her second move, so she was quite fresh. Um, she'd just been in Taiwan for six weeks, and I was her second companion. And um, I picked her up at the train station, and uh, she, you know, kind of gave me this unhappy stare. And I said, hi, you know, my name's Joanna Way. Um, let's get your stuff on our bikes. So we loaded her suitcase, you know, one suitcase onto the back of each of our bikes and rode back through the traffic, the motor scooters, the traffic circles, the big blue trucks, all of that stuff. It's kind of hairy ride from the train station back to our house, back to our house. <laughs> and um, we were kind of whipping our apartment into shape, you know, running through this, you know, all of our, you know, PDA chores, doing them very fast uh, because we wanted to be able to get out the door, right out the door at five o'clock when PDA ended. And, um, this whole time, you know, she was kind of telling me things that, like, she didn't like Taiwan, she didn't like Chinese, she didn't like Chinese food, she didn't like being a missionary, you know, all of these things, and I, and I was thinking, you know, <coughs> how, how, how can she not like this? And at a certain point, um, as we were, you know, getting ready to go out the door, uh, at the end of our P-Day, our kind of whirlwind P-Day, she had this kind of overwhelmed look on her face and she, I can't remember what she said, but she said something also, you know, about, you know, feeling like she was overwhelmed or not liking something or do we have to go out like right now or something like that. And I said something like, you know, sister, you know, we're missionaries. We work hard. We love it. And, and she started to cry and there were tears streaming down her face. And and I, I realized that I was completely a failure as a missionary. It doesn't matter how hard I worked or how, you know, how quickly I got us out the door. If I was not a compassionate, Christ-like person who could, you know, feel love for my companion and, you know, take her needs into account, I was, if I, if I couldn't do that, then I was a completely useless missionary. And, and that was one of the kind of realizations that helped me uh, try to focus on developing as a missionary in a different way. And um, so in the latter half of my mission, I really did try to, you know, to work on myself first and to try to be more like Christ. And in that process, I, I felt how the gospel changed people. It changed me. It gave me desires that, you know, it gave me the desire to love people and to serve people. It gave me this feeling of joy. It was like having a superpower. I felt like superhumanly loving. <laughs> Wow. It was, and you know, and, and the sad thing is, of course, you know, you come home from your mission and you and you almost never feel like that again. <laughs> right. Because as a missionary, you can totally focus on just you know just doing that. But but anyway, um, so so my mission was a wonderful experience because of the things that I learned, and and I also learned a lot about um, I learned a lot about the local church, by which I mean, I learned how, you know, Taiwanese church is different from Orange County Church. And I also learned how when you know every person in the congregation, when you know who they are, and and you love them, then you think about the church in a really different way from how you think about the church when you're not thinking about individuals, when you're just thinking about the church as this kind of institutional entity. So that's what I learned on my mission. 
Awesome. You know, I, I don't want to take away it all from that story. I, I just want to share maybe a, a personal thought of, of kind of bumping into the, the same problem. When I, when I joined the church, uh, I was a, a teenager. And I took the church really serious. I read everything I could read and I, I just made it a point to have as much information in my head as I could get, as much knowledge about the gospel. And, and as you're pointing out, you know, you're, you're educated. You are as equipped as anybody that goes on a mission to go into these kinds of cultures and to relate to these people, uh, on a cultural basis where they were at. And yet, as you point out, those, that type of thing doesn't convert people. And it, it, you know, it may get you an opening line with someone. It may get you in the door. But in the end, it, it's not going to change their heart. And, and I ran to the same issue as I was in my late teens, early twenties. I just automatically assumed that because I could explain the gospel more smoothly than anybody else my age, that this would have the same effect, that people would be jumping into the waters of baptism because the church just sounds so wonderful as Brother Real talks about it. But uh, but in reality, I think all of us have got to come to some point, and, and I did that as well. I just remember getting into a few discussions with people and having all the great answers to all the questions and it not doing anything for them spiritually, it not, it not in any way, shape or form converting them. And then I've had other experiences where I was just carrying my scriptures along and some man walked up to me and he said, what are you carrying? And I said, oh, I'm just, I'm carrying my set of scriptures. And he goes, he goes, I used to be a member of the reorganized church and I used to have a set of scriptures just like that. And I would love to go back to church. And it wasn't anything I said or did, but simply that man's heart was ready to change and he was looking, he was looking for something more. And uh, so I really appreciate you sharing that story. I hope that, you know, by you sharing that and maybe me adding these these two cents in, that as people are listening to this, that they might, if they're on that, that track that you and I were to begin with, that they might realize that there's a whole different way of uh, of approaching the gospel that works versus what we start off thinking works, if that makes sense. That's definitely true. And I think it's also different for everyone. You know, people start on, people have to cross over different fences in their in their progressions. I uh, I want to ask this question at some point. Maybe it's not the right point in this interview to ask this, but it sounds by this point you've gotten just a ton of experience going to from to different cultures, different countries, being among the saints in different places. And and I'll share my perception of what I perceived as a member of the church and then I want you to maybe help me and the listeners to understand how you saw it differently. I, I essentially spent my entire time in one ward. And the ward, I, I love my ward. I still am in this ward today, and I love it. And there's going to be members of this ward who will probably listen to this podcast, and they're probably going to shake me to death when I get done saying this. But the ward I grew up in was very rigid. And they saw the gospel one way, and there were these perfect, clean-cut answers to every question. And when I encountered trouble at times with some of those answers that I had been given, I struggled in the church. What I didn't realize and what you probably very well knew by then was that there is lots of variation from ward to ward, from culture to culture, from country to country. Would you, did you ever find yourself getting hung up on kind of the things I'm talking about or, or by seeing all that variation, was the gospel a lot more flexible for you? I think that it helps you realize how, uh, well, you know how Jesus said that 
Jesus said that the Sabbath is for man and not the man for the Sabbath. Right. I think a lot of those things come up in, um, if you only have one kind of church experience, you kind of develop these expectations for how everything is supposed to be, what the rules are, for example. So, right. for instance, um, when, in the ward where I grew up in the Costa Mesa First Ward in Costa Mesa, um, the chapel, for example, was you know, kind of like the standard Mormon building, This the chapel. It was this kind of, um, the chapel was a, a space that was a kind of reverent space. Um, all events in the chapel had to be in Sunday dress, even if it was a youth, um, like if it was a youth activity. Um, if it was in the chapel, you should be in Sunday dress or um, you should be extremely, extremely quiet um, and reverent, even, you know, so just the space itself was a space of reverence, kind of churchy space. Um, but, for example, um, in Hungary uh, and Xiamen and Hong Kong, these kind of places where I've you know, gone to church, um, this idea of a meeting space is quite different. So, for example, in um, in Hungary, um, the chapel where, where we attended church, you know, doubled as a multicultural space. So they had, you know, raucous minute-to-win-it games. They had um, noodle-pulling activities on the stand, you know, on the speaker stand of the chapel. Um, in Xiamen, China, um, our meeting place was someone's living room. So as we sat listening to, you know, to church, we were sitting on someone's rug. The kids were flopping on the ground <laughs> on the rug. You know, um, in Hong Kong, um, the chapels also spaces at a premium. In our building in Hong Kong, there are three chapels, and the two chapels that are not on the ground floor are also kind of multi-use spaces. You know, the chairs can come up. And they can host you know, Chinese New Year parties or Thanksgiving dinner celebrations. Um, so I, I just, I just, I've just learned that there are that the the rules for you know our sacred spaces or for how we use how we use of the church. Um, th- those change depending on the needs of the area. Another another way in which the church can be different is, for example, dress standards. So so for example, um, in in Hong Kong recently, we've been having freezing cold weather. Actually, it's it's not freezing cold, but for Hong Kong, it's really cold. So we've been really cold and the buildings aren't heated. So recently, when it was really cold and my kids were wearing, you know, four layers of clothing to church and I was wanting to wear, you know, five layers of clothing to church. um, I said one day, I'm wearing tights and pants. I'm it's freezing. I'm there's no way I'm wearing a dress in this weather. And, you know, I wore pants to church. And this is no big deal in the Mandarin branch because, uh, number one, there are lots of investigators. And number two, um People just don't really look at your clothes as much. I feel in the Mandarin branch, and, and, and that's kind of what I, I want to get at. I guess you know I want to. I'm asking this question. I think your answer is perfect because we'll tie into this. I'm asking in a sense that you know you'll go into one ward and the way in which the gospel is framed, uh, it, the way it is set up, the way it is defined, will be a certain way in certain wards. You'll have certain you know strong-minded members in, in, in each ward, and, and the, some of the views that they hold will tend to uh, peripherate uh, throughout the congregation, so people will kind of adapt what these, these wiser members, the way they see the gospel. But in reality, sometimes those aren't accurate, or they're not, they don't hold true. And, and I think you kind of going to this dress standard idea Idea is a great way to kind of tie this in because, you know, we have kind of a culture at times. You'll go to one ward, like you say, where everybody's expected to dress an absolute certain way anytime they're in the sacred space of the chapel. We even sometimes overstate things. Um, I recently ran into an instance where I was kind of joked with by another leader that I wasn't wearing a white shirt that day to church. I had on a, a, a pink shirt with a tie and, and a suit jacket. And he kind of joked around about I wasn't wearing a white shirt. 
And I, I mentioned back to him, I said, well, where did you get that from? Where did you get the idea that that's what I had to wear? And he started mentioning a talk in the church that that advice was in. Well, I went and found the talk and it's not there at all. And and I often feel like we we sometimes create doctrines or boundaries or rules or lines in the sand and we think that that's the church. That's how the church wants something done. But as you found out, in reality, as we go from place to place, the rules differ. The, the How we adapt the gospel to an area is different. And so to, to make the assumption, for instance, that every ward you walk in throughout the world, people are wearing white shirts, ties, and dress pants, or they're wearing dresses, that they're playing the organ on the stand, and that everybody is sitting you know, relatively reverently anytime they're in that sacred space doesn't fit the more you go to other congregations and you get a, in other places in the world. But if you can understand my point of view, when, when you're in one ward, to you, that's the gospel. And you expect kind of to, to anywhere else you go for the gospel to be positioned in that same way. And that can cause major hiccups for people. It, it seems like from your experience, those kinds of things wouldn't bother you as much. You would you would just kind of roll with the punches, as they say. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, it gives you perspective. You know that it's not necessarily this way in the eternities. You know, maybe it's right. this way in this given place. But I'm sure, though, I'm sure in some ways, though, does that make things more frustrating ever? I mean, the fact that you're aware of how different things can be and then to encounter something being kind of done in a stringent way when in reality it doesn't have to be that way? Um, oh, sure. That can be really frustrating. I think it can also cause real divisions. Um I think that, um, I mean, what I want to say also is that Mormon culture is also really important. I feel like it's really important. And I, I've, my view of this has developed as I've been in different places. For example, um, in the current branch that I attend, the Mandarin branch in Hong Kong, which is all the Mandarin speakers in Hong Kong. So a lot of, you know, a lot of Chinese nationals, um, people who were, who came from the PRC, also people from Taiwan. In this branch, um, it's not a very well-established branch. The institutions are not very well-established. And the culture is very fragmented. There's not really a kind of unified branch culture. And, um, and, and it's a lot more difficult, you know, in many ways to hold the branch together because we don't have that uh, Mormon wenhua, that Mormon culture. Whatever it is, I, I know it's different in different places, but I sure. believe that it's important. So I'm not saying that the kind of um, the norms and the mores of, of a local community are all rubbish, that we shouldn't have them, that they, you know, blind us to everything in the gospel, because you know, they're, they're very important, actually, in, in many ways, because they, you know, they, they make the community what it is. They, they help you know that you're part of the community. You know, I, I grew up in, again, this, this ward in Costa Mesa, and it, you know, it feels like my home when I go back there. And um, just the, the people there, you know, the families that are still there, the way that you know, the way that things are done, you know, the, I, I feel like those are my people, you know, and, and I actually feel this way, um, you know, usually wherever I go in the church, I, I can, I can feel that, um, because of these certain, these certain cultural things, not just doctrinal things, these cultural, uh, values that we share, these cultural practices that we share, I can, you know, I, I, 
those cultural markers are also very important. So I'm not saying that um, culture is not important or that culture that is not necessarily this kind of um, not peripheral. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm saying that there's a gospel and then there's culture. And sometimes culture can uh, we can be too attached to culture, but it's it definitely has its own purpose in, in binding our communities together. The key is the key is to not allow our different views of culture or our different interpretations to to cause us to view each other as unrighteous or unworthy or not belonging to, you know, to our uh, our Mormon family. Perfect. Perfect. That's that's the idea that, yes, there's a balance. Yes, you've got to have culture. If you don't have a, a culture, like you point out, you can be very disconnected and, and nothing that's drawing you together. But in reality, if you let that culture impact how you see others who don't follow the same rules that you do or the same standard that you do, when that standard has not been spelled out as part of the gospel, uh, it becomes an issue of where we're judging each other. And so I, I loved your answer. I thought that was great. All right. So Melissa, I want to, I want to ask you, you had mentioned, uh, Hong Kong and that's where you're, you're at now. Um, and I know that in our prep for this interview, you had talked a little bit or, or written to me a little bit about the, uh, the flexibility that's been, been utilized there in a sense, to adapt the church to the needs of the area. Would you mind sharing kind of what your experience in Hong Kong has been and and how things are different from, say, a ward in the United States? Oh, yeah. Hong Kong is a place where all of the rules get broken, almost, basically. Um, For example, recently, you know how most LDS temples are never open on Sunday, right? Because Sunday is the Sabbath. But um, this new initiative is starting up whereby there will be opportunities for Filipina workers, Filipina domestic workers, to attend the temple on Sunday. It's going to be, you know, some, I think um, on a monthly basis, there will be a couple of sessions on Sunday. So the temple will be open on Sunday to take care of the needs of Filipina sisters who only have their day off on Sunday. And in this, while I'm talking about uh, Filipina domestic workers, um, there are entire branches of Filipina domestic workers in Hong Kong. They're they're huge branches, and they meet on whenever the workers have a day off. So there's a branch that meets on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, Friday and Saturday, as well as Sunday. So there is a couple call them fortunate or unfortunate, however you like it. Their sole job, their missionary senior couple, yeah. their whole mission is going to church for every day of the week. <laughs> I think I would enjoy that to begin with, but uh, yeah, that would be different. And and I think that's a cool thing, right? I mean, so essentially these, these church members are not going to church on the Sabbath day, but on other days of the week. And so sometimes in America, here in the United States, we'll kind of think it's odd that other churches will have their services on a Wednesday night or a Saturday evening. But just as you're pointing out, even our church is adapting to those kinds of needs uh, where necessary. Oh, exactly. And um, the, this, this missionary couple, their P-Day, of course, is Sunday. So that's their day that is officially search church. So Sunday is their official church sanctioned day for shopping, for going out, <laughs> for, for going to Disneyland. They can go to Disneyland on Sunday and feel perfectly fine about it because that's their day of rest. They, they need that break. That's their P day, you know. So again, you know, the missionaries are not for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for missionaries. So their whole job is, you know, is Sabbath meetings. Uh, running these meetings for the Filipina and Indonesian guest workers. Of course they need a day off, you know, so it's, it's Sunday. 
which is which is great. And then um, another kind of interesting thing about about the Hong Kong uh, the Hong Kong church is um, just the space. So Hong Kong is a really really dense society, and um, actually most of Hong Kong Island, for example, is mountains in the interior, and all of the houses are crammed together along the waterfront. So space is really at a premium. And so the church building gets used in many, many different ways. It gets used, you know, for kids' birthday parties. It gets used um, on the, you know, domestic helpers on their day off. They spend the whole day at the church, you know, with musical instruments, with picnic lunches. They um, so while while other Filipina guest workers or Indonesian guest workers are spending their day off on, you know, bridges or you know, subway underpasses or in parks on plastic tarps. Um, there's this beautiful building with bathrooms and kitchens and all of this space. So the the actual physical space um, gets a lot of use and it's so... You just think about the building in a different way because it's so important. It's so helpful. It's so familiar. You're there all the time for various things. Uh, the expatriate women and, and the, some of the Mandarin branch women run a music class, like a, an early childhood music class um, that actually is transplanted from what mothers do, Mormon mothers do in Los Angeles. It's called Music Makers. Anyway, um, so we have this class on Thursday morning. Where it's like an early childhood, you know, mothers and fathers and children kind of class where, you know, you sing the Incy Weensy Spider and you play with the parachute, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's, it's also a really great missionary opportunity because it's a very non-threatening way to invite people to come into come into a Mormon church to see what it's like also to hang out with Mormons and um it's just so wonderful because people will come you know people our friends will come in who are not LDS and they'll just be so amazed that the building is so nice and comfortable and clean and um, that there's the space that can be used so so in different places you know outside the United States where you know of course the United States People are not hanging out at the church all the time. They have, you know, big houses to hang out in or they have, you know, other other places. But in Hong Kong, it's the, the church building itself is also really different in how the members uh, think about the church. It, it's the building itself is so is so unique and a part of our lives in a different way. Really cool. It, you know, you talk about uh, the senior missionaries doing church every day except on Sunday. I mean, that's almost like an alternate universe and and for them then to come off their mission to kind of go back to the way things are supposed to be, I can only imagine that's got to be a tough transition for them. Well, I don't know. I mean, they they have to teach the same Sunday school lesson, you know, every every day. So I imagine that actually one of them said to me after her, you know, she was she was joking, of course, but she said, you know, after my mission, I'm never going to have to go to sacrament meeting again. <laughs> she had gotten an eternity of sacrament meetings in. That's great. So, Melissa, kind of wrapping up, are there are there any other places you've been or things you've done that uh, that might help us, kind of from a Western culture, um, maybe see see the uniqueness of the church in different places? Well, recently, two things have happened that have really changed my view of the church as a global church. And the first thing was that I learned that um, that there are thousands, apparently, thousands of LDS children who have died of malnutrition. This was just shocking to me. I, I, I'm used to thinking of the church as a place where I know everybody, right? Like in, in my church communities, I know people. And if one of the children in my ward or branch were malnourished and in danger of dying of starvation or, or of being sick because he or she was malnourished, I feel like I would know and I would be, I would do something so that this child would receive help. 
But the Liahona Foundation, a charitable foundation run by Mormons, has done health surveys of, of children in certain parts of the world, like Guatemala and Cambodia, and found that there are large numbers of LDS children who are malnourished and who indeed um, are in danger of dying or who have died from malnutrition. And this is just completely shocking to me. I feel like I just, I've always felt like I would know if there were Mormon kids who needed help because because that's how we work in the church. We always know who we are and who needs help, right? Um, and so this idea that the church is suddenly, not suddenly, this idea that the church has grown so large, that our community is so large, that this could happen is really, is really mind-boggling to me. I still don't really know where to go with that. The second thing that has changed my view of the church as a global church is my recent visit to Africa, to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to visit my parents-in-law, who are mission presidents there. And um, when we went there, I, I, I have, you know, I've been to church in many different parts of the world, and I've, I've spent time in third world countries. And um, I've seen, you know, people who were poor, but for some reason, when I was in Africa, when I was in the Congo, I it was the first time that I had realized that the way that many of the members of the church related to the church as this extremely rich foreign institution, or this extremely rich local and foreign institution, this institution with foreign leaders and foreign funding, I realized that this way in which people relate to the church is very different, which is not to say that they're not faithful members of the church, that they don't have testimonies, that we don't share these kind of fundamental Mormon values. But the relationship is different. Um, it was very different because of that, um, just because of this huge issue of money. So anyway, it made me think about, it makes me realize that, well, actually, I really don't understand it yet. I am trying to figure out, you know, we were united with everyone around the world by our common faith and by our commitment, and in many cases, by the temple covenants that we've made to each other. At the same time, at the same time, the cultural and the national divisions between us are real. The, the, differences, in the, the differences in our circumstances, our socioeconomic circumstances, our standards of living, those differences are more, are more powerful than I had realized. And when you meeting with people, you know, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, who are, you know, wonderful, happy people, who are faithful members of the church, who live exemplary family lives, but who face real problems like very sexist attitudes towards educating women, very sexist attitudes towards children, toward women in general, that really limit their development, I feel, as, as children of God. Also seeing the, the poverty and the lack of access to good health care that, you know, that, that also can severely limit your, a person's development. Seeing these things, these kind of intractable problems, problems that NGOs and uh, certainly the, the government of the Democratic Republic of the Congo have failed to solve. Um, so being with people who have these real problems where, you know, their children may die because they get malaria or because they don't have access to health care or where um, daughters may grow up without education because of the attitudes uh, towards women's intellect in the local culture seeing these problems that are seemingly intractable is very troubling to me because I've made covenants to these people. I've made covenants in the temple to consecrate all that I have and all of my time and all of my energy to building up the kingdom of God. So when you come against these problems that are insurmountable and yet you've made covenants to 
you know, be one with these people who are experiencing these insurmountable problems. I, I don't know what to do. I, 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 I still can't really wrap my mind around it. As I, as I hear you describe all of that, as I hear you talk about encountering essentially the ills of society, but in places where we're talking about Latter-day Saints, and it, and it makes me think about, you know, here we are in the United States, and, and even I think for you in Hong Kong, right? If someone has a need, they can go see their bishop, they can, they can get some welfare assistance. And we have members who are donating lots of, lots of, you know, money through fast offerings and through other, other types of donations that are meant to help these individuals. And it seems like in the United States, we do a, a really good job of when someone has a need of meeting that and taking care of that need in a way that they may even have more than what is necessary. And then here, here you're experiencing a culture outside of of, you know, these developed countries in places where they're, you know, certainly, uh, un- undeveloped in some ways and lacking in some of the, the resources that, that countries like the United States and, and Japan and others have. And the church just in some way doesn't meet, and, and again, I'm not blaming the church. It's a, it's a whole different game, but it doesn't meet the needs in the same way that it does here. It's almost like you almost think, that the church is this entity that can solve all of those kinds of problems, right? There's no reason that a Latter-day Saint child should starve to death. And yet, right? And, and yet somehow, somehow we're oblivious because of the culture that we live in. We just assume that everything gets taken care of and all is well in Zion. But in reality, somehow the solutions that are here either can't or somehow don't make their way to those who really need them. I mean, you know, I'll have, uh, I served as a bishop, Melissa, and, uh, and I had, you know, people who came to me and had needs and their needs were real, but the situations you're describing make the people who came to me seem like extremely wealthy people who really didn't have a need at all. It's almost ironic, right? We're a church of 15 million members, you know, half of those, or, or maybe a little less than half are, are somewhat active. The donations are coming in. The church financially is super stable. And yet somewhere in the world, we have women who are unallowed to be educated who are Latter-day Saints. We have Latter-day Saint children who are starving to death or suffering from disease or at the very least extremely vulnerable to those kinds of, uh, those kinds of influences and negative things. And yet it's almost like our hands are tied and there seems like there's no way to address it or fix it. I mean, I, I hear you. I have never thought about those things you're talking about. And as you point out, you know, you said you, you always knew there were people in Africa who were starving, but, and I knew that too, but I never thought for a moment that there was a Latter-day Saint child somewhere who didn't have access to the funds of the church so that they didn't have to starve. And, and that's super, super sad that you say that. Is, I mean, are you aware of anything that we can do? I mean, as members of, of the church here in the United States or members of Hong Kong, I mean, is there anything that we can do to, to maybe at least do something? Yes, well, the the um, charitable organization that's conducted these health surveys in numerous less developed countries is called the Liahona Foundation, and it's a Mormon charitable foundation, and it it's for um, its goal is to address these malnutrition issues among Latter Day Saint children around the world. 
So I, I know they're working on some some ventures. I think um, one of the new ventures that will be coming out will be like an adopt the stake program, where a, a, a developed nation stake can adopt a stake in a less developed nation. The mon- the actual money apparently required um, to give kids nutritional supplements is is really really small. It's like a drop in the bucket. It's like seven million dollars per year, I believe, um, which is nothing, you know. Right. But yeah, I know they have a website. And that they are um, growing, so I commend well, you to that. The Liahona. Yeah. Here's here's what I'll do. When this episode comes out, I will put a link uh, to that to that uh, foundation, that uh, that charitable organization. What I'll also do too is I'll put a little intro at the beginning of this episode, so that anybody who makes a donation to this podcast in the month that this episode releases, and I'll make sure it releases at the beginning of a month. And anybody who sends in a donation to the podcast, we'll just send on to uh, the Liahona. Melissa, so just let's, let's end on this note. You've shared with us today the, the, the extreme variation that we find around the world in the church. Some of those being really big positives, but also being aware, aware here kind of towards the end of some of the, the ills and, and unfortunate things that are still happening in the world that absolutely involve Latter-day Saints as well. Do you want to maybe just kind of uh, give us some final thoughts on uh, on some of the ideas that uh, that you've picked up being all over the world, being in different places, being aware of the positives and and also the negatives, and uh, maybe help us see just one last time some of the uh, the vision that you've got because of your experience. Well, I feel like I've been to church all over the world, and I've been part of Mormon communities all over the world, and. The great blessing of the church, not just the gospel, but the church, the institutions, is that um, wherever I go, I'm part of a community where I have the opportunity to know people and to serve them and where they have the opportunity to teach my children and take care of them and where I have the opportunity to be involved in people's lives. And this is this is the great blessing, one of the great blessings of the gospel to me, this intense, this intensely local character of Mormonism. We're a global church and we have, you know, leaders who are recognized and whose voice is heard across the globe uh, throughout the church. But really, the life of a Mormon congregation is is where everything happens in the church. And um, it's different, you know, it, it has a different culture. It can have the life of a local Mormon congregation is deeply affected by its local cultural context. Um, but within these unique cultural communities, the same thing happens. We're thrown together with people who are not really like us in many ways. Um, we have to work with them and um, work with them to build the church. And in working with people, um, we come to love them. And, you know, as a young mother with a with four kids and various other interests, I don't have a lot of time. So I don't really, uh, I don't really, um, you know, go see movies with my friends a lot, for example. And my husband and I rarely go on dates, but we do, my husband and I both spend a lot of time working in the church with other members of the church in primary or, you know, my husband's in the branch presidency or doing um, missionary work or whatever. And, in working with the members of the church, um, I I come to love them. I love them so much, and they're my people. 
and I, I feel um, so much affection and admiration for them. So this is what I really love and appreciate about the gospel is that it, it gives us the church. It gives us these local institutions, these local opportunities to serve and this commandment to come together and to be one, even though we're so different. And um, that really helps me to be more like Christ and to see the places where I fall short and also to hopefully be there as a support for other people. So um, that is, that's one of the gospel's greatest blessings for me. Awesome. Melissa, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I, uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us. I hope, I hope listeners eyes are really open to the, the diversity and the variation, the differences that are out there. And also, as you pointed out, to be more aware of some of the, the things that maybe we can do a better job helping with both as a church and, uh, and as an individual. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Abide with me today.